Uh, our scripture reader today is Jonathan Garlinghouse, and he's going to read Romans 8, 18 through 30. Uh, in honor of God's word, uh, please stand. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Um, okay, so we've been in a series in uh, Romans chapter 8, and uh, I want to just start right off by saying, where, where have we been? Uh, this, this text uh, that Jonathan just read for us uh, has um, a ton uh, in it, and I kind of feel like I want to say a ton, and uh, you might feel like I do that every week, but this week even more so, um, and so let's, let's get right to it, and I'm going to just bring you right up to speed where we've been uh, through this, this series. Uh, if you were here the very first week, I tried to take some time and say, it might be helpful for us to orient where we're at in the book of Romans. So uh, if you have your Bible, you know, there's 16 chapters in, in the book of Romans. But it was originally a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to this church uh, in Rome uh, almost 2,000 years ago. And, uh, and he wrote this letter to, to try to help them. And there's a very real sense in which he's, he's focused on this, this issue of rightness, of being right, you could, you, maybe you're familiar with the term righteous or righteousness. And it, it appears that Paul is, is spending quite a bit of time to talk with this church about the nature of rightness or, or righteousness. And so rightness or righteousness, uh, if you, maybe if you grew up in the church, it, it's easy to think of the term righteousness as just a moral term. Uh, are, you a, are you a righteous person? Do you do righteous things? And it is a moral term, but it's not just moral. It's also relational. Are, are we right? Are we in right relationship? Are you and I right? We all right? Like it, it has that sense to it as well. And so as Paul is talking to this church in Rome, he's inviting them into this, into this discussion on rightness. And as you were to, if you were to walk through the first chapters of, of Romans, um, here's a possible way to understand the flow of what Paul is suggesting or what he's offering to this church. Romans chapter 1. 
Everybody needs to be made right. And he's, he's recognizing that the world is broken and that sin has infected people and everybody is in the condition of needing to be made right. Romans chapter 2, nobody can make themselves right. So in Romans chapter 2, he starts to talk about uh, the, the religious people, the people who have the law, the people who think of themselves as the ones who are obeying God and they're doing what he said and they're checking the boxes. And Paul reveals to them that no matter how good you think you are, you cannot make yourself right. Romans chapter 3, only Christ can make you right. Romans chapter 4, only faith in Christ will make you right. Romans chapter 5, anyone can be made right. In Romans chapter 5, Paul contrasts the first Adam who in the garden failed the test and in that failure brought condemnation on the whole world. And then he talks about the second Adam, Christ, who came and he, in the, in the garden of Gethsemane, he didn't fail. And he went to the cross and he died in our place and he provided through his life uh, the opportunity for righteousness for all. And he says it's not limited to one ethnic people or to one people from one certain time. This is a wide open offer. Anybody can be made right. How? Through Christ. How? Through faith in Christ. This is, this is the Paul, uh, this is the argument that Paul is laying out. And then in Romans 6 through 8, uh, Paul is showing us that everyone who is made right is changed. Changed fundamentally. And in Romans chapter 6, he talks about our baptism. And he says that you've been baptized into Christ. If you've come to Christ in faith, then you've been baptized into Christ. And you've been raised to walk in newness of life. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about all the conflict that we experience in trying to follow Jesus. And maybe some language that, 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 that we can relate to where he says, the things that I don't want to do are the things that I end up doing. And the things that I don't want to do are the very things that I end up doing. But there's this beautiful uh, recognition in the midst of all of that tension that, that, that Paul is feeling. And the, 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 the reveal is that the real you, if you've come to faith in Christ, the real you is the you that wants to obey God. So yeah, you're, you're a mangled up mess. Your motivations are a mess. You're, you're a hypocrite way more often than you want to be a hypocrite. But Paul is saying that in the midst of all of those tensions, the real you, if you've been made alive in Christ, the real you is the you that wants to obey God. And that is good news for us. Uh, then you get to Romans chapter 8. In this chapter, this 39 verses packed full of so many things, uh, Paul is inviting like, how those who have been made right, how do they navigate the world? How, what, what are the lenses that they're seeing through? And right off the bat in Romans 8 verse 1, we're told that there are, there's no more condemnation. That if you have been made new in Christ, the way you're seeing the world now is you are actually really, truly forgiven. No more condemnation. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. Jesus took all of them and you really are not condemned anymore. He talks about life in the Spirit. That God makes, when, when we come to faith in Christ, that he makes us alive through the work of the Spirit of God. He tells us that the Spirit of God dwells in us. And he tells us that because of this new life, we've been adopted into the family of God. We are now children of God. We are heirs with Christ. We have this perfect older brother, Jesus. And then look around. We have all of these brothers and sisters. We've been invited into this global, spiritual family of all who have placed their faith in Christ. And then last week, as we got into verses 18 through 25, we, we see right there in verse 18, he's owning it. 
He says there's sufferings that we're engaging uh, as we walk through this life. This life presents us with some really, really legitimate challenges. How should we see those sufferings? How should we endure those sufferings? How, should we, how, how can we make it? And in those first seven verses, verses 18 through 25, what Paul lays before us is hope. It's hope. So I, I, I want to just visit that briefly as we move into this next t- uh, section, verses 26 through 30. So what help is available? In verses 18 through 25, Paul is pointing us to hope as a resource for navigating this world, navigating it well through all of the ups and downs, through all of our sufferings. And as he comes to the end of that text, verses 23 through 25, he is just declaring hope. And he says, like, hope is fundamental to the Christian experience. And the definition of that hope is that while sin has ravaged and broken God's good creation, through the work of Jesus, God's redeeming this place. He's already started that work in all of these little ways, and he started that work in individual hearts. He's actually redeeming hearts. He's promised to make all things new. He's going to renew the whole place. But right now, primarily, Jesus is at work redeeming individual hearts. And this hope, this hope of Jesus' work in us, this hope of what is coming, is a resource to navigate the world for those who have been made alive in Christ. Now, as we come to verse 26 through 30, Paul offers an additional encouragement uh, that we are not doing this alone. So notice in, 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 uh, in verse 26, it says, likewise. Likewise. So he just made this argument that hope is an incredible resource for the Christian, that we know where this story is headed. We understand we're invited into the story of the world, and we rehearsed that story last week. And so he says, likewise, or in the same way. So now he says, just as in the same way, the same way that our hope helps us, the Spirit of God helps us. Likewise, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that earlier Paul says dwells in us. He's saying here that that Spirit is helping us. Listen, you may feel alone, but child of God, even when you are physically alone, you are never actually alone. You are never alone. The Spirit is with you. The Spirit is helping you. The Spirit dwells in you. And Paul says this helps us navigate this world that is broken and this world that is groaning. One of the most powerful ways that the Spirit is at work is by interceding for us. In other words, the Spirit of God prays for us. How incredible is that? that the Spirit of God prays for us. And Paul says very clearly here in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us, helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us. And and I don't want to miss that phrase, that the Spirit helps us. This is telling us that we have a responsibility here, that we pray and the Spirit helps us with those prayers. So the Spirit of God is praying for us, But the Spirit of God is doing something with the prayers that we're offering. And so at bare minimum here, what I want to say right now is take action. Take action. You you play a part in this journey that the Spirit helps you. Doesn't do it for you. The Spirit helps you. Take action. 
He, as, as Paul writes here, he says, The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The connection with groaning. Gro- groaning shows up a few times in this text. Between verses 18 and verse 30, groaning shows up three different times. One time we're told that creation is groaning. Then we're told that the children of God are groaning. And then here it says that the Spirit of God is groaning. That the Spirit of God is is taking our prayers and he's communicating with God the Father. He is groaning too. The Spirit is translating, interpreting, decoding as we pray. So, brothers and sisters, pray. You know, there's a quote that has a whole bunch of different variations, but the general sense of it is this. Action always beats inaction. Every day of the week, action beats inaction. And so apply this to prayer. Praying beats not praying. Why? Well, one of the reasons is because the Spirit of God is at work in our prayers in a way that is too deep for words. We're going to revisit that idea, but that, just, just hold on to that. When you pray, the Spirit is at work in your prayers in a way that is too deep for words. Paul describes it as some sort of groaning. So pray, brothers and sisters, and do not give up. You know, one of Jesus' parables in Luke chapter 18, it's a pretty short parable, it's just eight verses, uh, but it's the, the, the parable of what we sometimes refer to as the persistent widow. And, I, and I, I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but the general sense of that, that uh, parable is that there is a woman who is being mistreated, and she's a widow. And so in that culture, she had no one to stand for her, no one to defend her. So she goes, what, she does what she should do. She goes to the judge. Unfortunately, she has an unjust judge. And she goes to the judge, and she begs, and she pleads, and she pounds on the door, and she persists, and she won't give up. And that judge stiff arms her, and that judge ignores her. And finally, the judge says, you know what? In order to try to get her to shut up, I'm going to listen to what she has to say. That parable starts with Jesus saying, I'm going to tell you this story so that you pray and do not give up. And then he tells this story of a persistent widow who never gives up. But what's Jesus' point in telling that story? That widow was praying to an unjust judge who didn't love God and didn't love people. That's what the parable says. He stiff-armed justice. Jesus' point is this. She didn't quit in that condition. What's the condition for the child of God? You're praying to a judge who is the perfect judge of heaven, who loves justice and loves people. So come, pray, and do not give up. Take action, pray, and do not give up. Part of the reason is, is because the Trinity is listening. The Trinity is listening to your prayers. That, that is quite good news. It's help that is available, and Paul doesn't want you to miss it. Secondly, what answers we get. Uh, Maybe you're here and you're like, Matt, you have no idea the commitment I have to praying. I pray all the time. Like, I pray all the time. Like, not one time a day, throughout the day. I'm praying all the time and I need an answer and I feel like the persistent widow. I feel like I'm getting stiff-armed. I feel like I'm not getting answers. I pray all the time. Well, what what does Paul have to say about this? I mean, my guess is that most of us uh, probably feel a little bit of guilt about prayer. 
we recognize that we probably aren't praying quite as often as we want to or maybe as we think we should. And so maybe we feel a level of guilt. But maybe you're saying, no, I don't feel guilty. I feel desperate. I've asked for help and I've not gotten any help. Well, what does Paul point to here in regard to the answers that we get? Well, I want to just admit it. This is really controversial. Romans 27 and especially Romans 28 are controversial verses. They bother a lot of people. Uh, in, in verse 27, there's a phrase that says, he who searches hearts, verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit. And so that, that phrase, he who searches hearts, is referring to God the Father. And the point here is that the, the Father grants everything that the spirit prays for. As verse 27 unfolds, because the spirit prays or intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when the Spirit prays, the Spirit is praying in line with God's will. The Father knows the, 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 uh, who knows hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, and answers the prayers of the Spirit of God. Then you get to verse 28. All things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. If you uh, don't have uh, some sort of autopilot filter on, and you're reading that verse for real, and you're not saying, I memorized that once, or I've heard that before, like you're actually reading those words, that's hard. That's pretty disruptive. All things work together for good? That is not the experience of a lot of people on this earth. So where do we start? Well, let me try. Um, let me, let me try. So maybe you are aware of the fact that the historic Christian perspective of the world is that the world is not in its current condition. It, it, it's not working. So the world in its current condition is broken and full of hardship. That's the historic Christian view of the world. In, in other words, Christians historically have not expected things to work out on the normal day, on the average day. Christians expect our work, for example, to be by the sweat of our brow. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rejected God's good way and chose their own way, sin broke into the world, and vandalism, uh, Shalom was vandalized, and when God talks to Adam, he says, from now on, your work isn't going to be easy. Like, you're still going to get stuff done, and you're going to have some, some, some things are going to go fine. But you're going to constantly be running into thorns. You're going to constantly be running into weeds. Things aren't going to work out. It's, it's just as likely that it's not going to work out that it will. The, the world is not right. There's something twisted. There's something distorted about the world. And it's not just our work. It's our relationships. We, we, we have space. We, we have a recognition that our relationships are often full of tension, misunderstanding. Have you noticed how hard language is? Have you noticed how hard it is to just communicate something to someone in a way that like, that's exactly what I meant, and they heard what I meant, and they received it the right way? Like, it, it, we, we are not, the historic Christian perspective is not surprised by those challenges. When things do work out, Christians have responded to those good things with thankfulness to God. 
That, that's been the invitation, is when things do work out to recognize that this is a grace gift, that this is God's common grace on the earth. This is more than I deserve. So historically, this has produced a level of humility and a level of gratitude. But something has happened, I would say. I, I do not see this perspective as the dominant perspective for many of the followers of Jesus. No, I mean, I, I see us wanting our, our best life now. I see, I see us expecting God to answer our prayers our way on our timeline. I see us expecting God to never step on our toes, but instead to affirm what, whatever choice we want to make. Some are so committed to feeling good that subjects like sin and suffering are fully avoided. And I mean, let's pause for a second. Why, why would you want to think about those things? Who here wants to sit around thinking about sin or suffering? I mean, th th those things are hard things. Those things don't make us feel good. Happy feels good. And honestly, for a lot of people, happiness is the goal of life. Uh, there's a, a sociologist from the 20th century named Philip Reif, and uh, I have never read one of his books. But Philip Reif is referenced so often in so many of the efforts to understand what's going on in our world. And what's interesting about Philip Reif is that his, maybe you would say his most significant book was written 60 years ago. And people are still finding his perspective on the shifts that have happened in our culture to be really important. And one of the things that, that Philip Reef recognizes is that what he calls the religious man was born to be saved, but the psychological man is born to be pleased. And Philip Reef is, is tracking these shifts in our culture. And he says, for a long time, the, the general cultural reality was that we were religious people. And in that culture, you would refer to that, that culture, generally speaking, as they were religious, the religious man, the religious woman. And in that cultural context, you were born to be saved. It made sense. That was the logic. That was the air that you breathed. That was the, that was the culture. But as the culture has shifted over the last hundred years, what Philip Reef is pointing to is that we don't have the religious man, the religious woman, not like we used to. Now we have the psychological man, the psychological woman, and the general nature of our culture, the, the air that we breathe. We are much more attuned to the psychological than we, ever, than we were to the religious. And he says, what's true of the psychological person? Well, the psychological person is born to be pleased. Does it make sense to you now? Why happiness functions as the ultimate goal of our society? And man, if the goal of life is to be happy, then why in the world should I ever have to put up with hard things? Why should I have to put up with a hard marriage, a marriage that's struggling? Why should I have to put up with needy friends? Why should I have to let go of a lifestyle choice that feels good to me but is contrary to God's design? Why should I have to go through any trials at all if the point of life is happiness and I'm not getting happiness, then I want, I'm hitting eject. I want out. And as you know, suicide rates are on the rise in dramatic ways and in dramatic ways among young people. Might it be 
That if we've bought the idea that happiness is the ultimate goal of life and my life is not happy, then what's the point of going forward? Just do what you want to do. Do what feels good. You know, hashtag YOLO. You only live once. Well, that is not God's view of life on the earth in its current condition. The, the, the Bible actually uses this imagery. Do you, do you know what the word pruning means? The, the, to prune something, what, what, what that means is to trim by cutting away dead or overgrown branches, especially to increase fruitfulness and growth. So think of a vine. Pruning is going to that vine and, yeah, cutting off the dead branches, but also cutting off the, vine, the, the branches that aren't helping, that are overgrown. Does that sound a little painful to you? you, you I think it would be right if you were like, ouch, pruning? Like, the Bible says that God is about the work of pruning us. Ouch is the right response. But it is a very important part of interacting with the vine so that the vine can fulfill its ultimate potential. You see, left to itself, you know, letting the vine grow free, if it was totally free, it would never experience its potential. Think of pottery. The potter is constantly redirecting the clay, constantly correcting it, pressing it, moving it. If that clay was ever left to itself, if that clay was ever free, it would never experience its potential. The potter is at work redirecting the clay for the good of the clay so that it will end up beautiful and beneficial, fulfilling its potential. See, when we go back to the plants especially, living things need outside care, direction, correction, if they are to thrive. And the Bible actually refers to God as a gardener, as a pruner, as a potter. These are actually not surprising if you sit down with the Bible. The Bible is being very honest with us and very open with us that God's interaction in our life is going to sometimes be a little painful. There's going to be some stepping on the toes. There's going to be some cutting of the branches. But why? See, it's this principle that living things need outside care and direction if they're going to thrive. But our cultural moment has gone to war with outside sources of direction and correction. There's several philosophers that have addressed this, uh, uh, McIntyre, Taylor, and they've been translated for guys like myself by other writers who digest it and help us understand it better. Uh, but here's the argument. Here, here's, here's the way it's been summarized. There has been a shift in our culture, and these shifts, I don't want to get into this, but the, the, the shifts don't mean that what was was good and that what is is bad. It's just tracing the shift. It's just saying what is. What is the situation that we are in? Here's the shift. The shift has gone from external values to live up to to internal desires to live out. Maybe a better way to say it or a more helpful way to say it is that we used to see the world, humans used to see the world, and the general idea was this. The truth is out there. I've got to go find that truth and then I have to align my inner life in light of what that truth is. But the shift is now 
No, no, the truth isn't out there. The truth is in here. And I have to go in here and find my truth. And then I'm going to expect the external world to align itself to my truth. Can, can, can you see how this doesn't work out? Can you see the amount of pressure that that is on a person to go in and find their own truth? That, that in and of itself is daunting. But then to turn out and to expect everybody out there to align themselves to my truth? You, you can see how this is not working out. What's this all led to? Well, one of the outcomes is that we used to look to authorities and institutions to form us. Now we look to authorities and institutions to affirm us. We, you know, college campuses. You, you used to go to a college and that college had, it was an institution. It had, it had something to offer you. It was going to form you into the kind of person that you needed to be to navigate the world. And so you went to that campus and you came out as a, as a U of M guy or as a, you know, as a Harvard guy or a Harvard girl. Now we go to college and what, what happens immediately? You, you, you get a group of people together who are like you and you go to the administration and you say to the administration that the college should bend to make sure that I'm not offended here. We, we, we go to the college and we say, you affirm us. We're not here to be formed. We're actually here to be affirmed. And that's a little simplistic. But generally speaking, these are the trends in our culture. The question I want to ask us today is not, you know, are college kids messed up? We were messed up when we were college kids too. The question is, has this happened in your relationship with God? Is this how you think about God? Is the current, I mean, this is the current of our cultural stream. So it would be a really natural conclusion that you have come to without even thinking about it to conclude that God's job is not to form you, but that God's job is to affirm you and to affirm your choices. That he's some sort of a happy-go-lucky grandpa in the sky who doesn't really get modern-day things. And you're going to come to him and present yourself and expect him to just affirm you. That would be such a natural conclusion. That, that, that's the oxygen that we're breathing. It's the world we're in right now. Is that what you think he's supposed to do? But see, Paul in Romans chapter 8 seems to be saying... What if God's at work in a way that messes up your plans? What if God's at work not to just affirm you, but he's actually at work to form you? And that even when you pray, he might still allow suffering and hardship. Are you okay with that? Are you open to the possibility that it might even be for your good? And when you think about Romans 8.28, I understand all of the tensions that come. And, and I just, I want to say this to make sure it's clear. Romans 8.28 is not saying that the events or those details are good themselves. But that God is big enough to work and weave them together for your good. That he brings all of those things to work together for your good. Go back to verses 26 and 27 where it tells us that the Spirit is helping us in our weakness, that the Spirit uh, prays for us. As we don't know what to pray, the Spirit is coming alongside of us, okay? So there's a couple things to take from that idea. First, on the one hand, those verses tell us 
that we have help and that we are not alone. That's what we talked about a couple minutes ago. But hold on to your seats because those verses are also telling us that we don't ask for the right things. And so the Spirit asks for the right things for us. And he doesn't really ask our permission. He takes our prayers and he translates those prayers and he puts them before God the Father. Here's here's an illustration of what that could look like. Let's just assume that you are a teenager and you want to ask your parents for a new video game console for Christmas. But you're super techie, you're super modern, so you do it over text. So you write this text and you're like, you know, mom and dad, I'm, I'm going to uh, clean my room and do the dishes. But before I do that, you know, I just wanted to shoot over a little idea for, for Christmas. And, you know, I, I really want a PlayStation 5 for Christmas. Uh, love you guys. You're, you're, you're the best. Yeah. Hit, click, click send. There's probably an emoji, an emoji or two in there, too. <laughs> um, so he, he, he clicks send. But somehow... In between clicking send and the ding that occurs on your parents' phone, the text is changed. And as your parents read that text, what they read is that what you've really asked for is that you want them to enroll them, or they want you to enroll them at a class at NMC that teaches them how to write programming, how to code for for computer programs. Now, there's a whole bunch of ways that you could say this. Right? I mean, I could have said, like, they wanted vegetables. And you'd be like, yeah, that's God. The guy wants fun, something fun, and God wants something, you know, like, eat your vegetables. It's, it's, not that, it's not that simple. But you see, how would you feel about somebody in between your sending of the text and your parents receiving of the text changing what you asked for? Saying, I, I, I get your heart here, but what, what, what you really want and what you really need is, is this. How do you interact with that reality? Now, now you know, take that illustration and multiply it by infinity, and you will still have barely an idea of what Paul is talking about. But are you okay with that? I mean, that's hard to accept no matter what. But if you believe that your version of happiness is the goal of life, then it will be absolutely impossible for you to receive that. You are literally going to want to say, Spirit, get out of here. You are literally going to want to say, Spirit, I've got it. I know what I want. Leave me alone. That may be more in our hearts than we realize. Thankfully, the Spirit doesn't quit on us. So would you like to know what the Spirit is praying for you? They're not praying that you enroll at a class at NMC. What, 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 are, what is the Spirit actually praying for you? Well, here's the final point, the, the, the road that we're on. God is at work in the lives of his people, and that work started way earlier than you can imagine. And in these final verses, what we find out, verses 28, 29, and 30, and we know that for, the, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
So some people refer to this as the golden chain, that these are uh, undeniably uh, progressive, that in the life of the child of God, these things are connected and they are unstoppable, that they are foreknown, they are predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Now, I don't know how many of those five words bother you, but I certainly know that the first two words, maybe the first three words, bother a lot of people. The idea that some are foreknown, that some are predestined, that some are are called. And what stirs up in a lot of hearts is, what about those who aren't? So if you're here and you're asking, you know, who's in? Who's predestined? I've got really good news for you. You don't need to worry about that at all. Not at all. Listen, it is gloriously true that God is at work in the lives of his people since before the foundations of the world. It is true that God is sovereign over the whole world. But it is also gloriously true that God invites every one of us to respond to his invitation. The Bible clearly says, whosoever will, come. So there's these invitations. And in a very real sense, the, the, the Bible is telling us that two things that feel opposite are simultaneously true. On the one hand, chosen by God. On the other hand, you're called to choose. Those don't feel, in our ability, they they don't feel like they can be simultaneously true. But you know, in one of Paul's letters, as he's writing to, to 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 the church there, he's explaining something, and he actually says this. I speak in human terms. You know, what, what Paul is saying is, there are some things about God that just don't translate into human understanding. And if you know anything about Paul's story, Paul was actually taken up into uh, another realm. So, I, I'm not trying to explain it. I'm just telling you what it says. He, he was taken up in some other realm. And when he came back, he was a changed man. And it tells me that Paul knows some things that he can't write. It says that the Spirit prays in groanings that are too deep for words. Paul is telling us that God's at work in ways that pens and paper don't work. I can't get it to you. I can't say it. There's no way to say it. It's too deep for words. God's at work in the world in ways that are too deep for human understanding. Now, thankfully, most, the most important things in the Scriptures are within our grasp. But do you have space for God to be bigger than your comprehension? To be at work in the world in ways that you can't understand? Or do you conclude that if you can't find an explanation, then there must not be one? Now, I know probably most of us are aware enough to not say things like that out loud. But is that what's going on in you? That if I can't come up with an explanation, then there must not be one. But what if God is doing, what, what, if, what if what God is doing in the world really is beyond our ability to grasp. Surely that's not too hard for us to believe. I mean, if you were alive you know, just a few centuries ago, we didn't know about germs. R- running around and, 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 and germs just uh, causing such incredible trauma on the earth, and we didn't know that they existed. If you believe there's only five senses, let me tell you, you're way behind. We're up to seven, and there might be more senses uh, that, that, that humans uh, enjoy. Enjoy. There weren't seven when I went to school, but there are now, apparently. I I heard an interview on NPR uh, with a guy who wrote a book on trees. And maybe you heard the movie uh, or saw the movie, Hidden Life of Trees. 
but he, he uh, has spent a lot of time with trees. And uh, he, he believes that trees communicate, that trees support each other, that trees learn from experience, that trees form alliances. And there's a whole documentary that, 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 make, that makes his case. Uh, UFOs? Like, let's, let's not even go there. But, but don't, don't you think that there's more going on in the world than what we know? I, I, I actually don't think that that's that hard to admit. Here's the point. Romans 8, 28 through 30 mean that God is committed to making every single thing that happens in your life be redeemed and redirected to shockingly produce the most important thing, Christ-likeness. Not, he's not at work for the short term. He's not at work for the, uh, the immediate happiness. He is in it for the long haul. He's in it for the big picture. He's in it for the most important thing that you will ever experience in your life. And that is being conformed into the image of his son. See, this process, this golden chain, this life that we're living, it has a trajectory. And it is literally glorious. It is literally glorious. Uh, Back in verse 17 of this chapter, as Paul talks about what it is to be a child of God, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And as you come to the end of this section, Paul says, you want to know where this glorious chain goes? It goes to you being glorified. And Paul actually uses past tense because it's a done deal. It's a guarantee. This is where it is headed. This is the promise of God. It is literally glorious. And you say, well, man, my daily experience doesn't feel like that. Listen, let, let me give you a real quick illustration that I ran into years ago, and, I, and it's, it's been so helpful for me. Just envision a man walking upstairs with a yo-yo in his hand. And as he's walking up the stairs, the yo-yo is going up and down. But the man is walking up the stairs. Now, now think if you were the yo-yo. Could you, could you envision that the yo-yo's experience one day feels really up and one day feels really down? Maybe one minute feels really, really up and the next minute feels really, really down. But what is also happening to the yo-yo? It is ascending the stairs. It is being carried up the stairs. The man has the yo-yo in his hand, and the man is making his way to the top of the stairs. In 1 Peter 3.18, one of my favorite verses, I know I say it a lot, but it says that Jesus Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus Christ is climbing the stairs, and you and I are yo-yos. And our objective is to try to stay close to him, But our experience of the world is often full of ups and downs. But the promise, the guarantee, the golden chain is that we are headed to the top of the stairs. Jesus is carrying us there. And in some ways, it's already past tense. It's already happened. He's already made you alive. And he is going to bring you to the top. These verses tell us that with every step, God is at work to form us into the image of his son. Have you come to God to be formed or just to be affirmed? You know, God loves you. And because he loves you, he wants more for you than just being affirmed. He wants you to be conformed into the image of his son. 
And he is more committed to that than you are. You know, the story of the gospel is that Jesus broke into this world to bring you to God and make you new again. If you've run to Jesus, he is holding you. And yeah, along the way, directing, carrying, guiding, correcting. But degree by degree, step by step, he's bringing you all the way home. Let's pray. God, thank you for these verses and for the heaviness of these verses and for the the daily experience of life in a, in a world where we can really get some blind shots, where we can get uh, devastated by circumstances, that in the midst of, of joys, sometimes out of nowhere comes sorrow. Sometimes they're prolonged. We've prayed and prayed. And it seems like the answer that we want is not coming God, would you give us eyes to see this? Would you give us hearts that believe it? Would you allow us to, to, to just get, get into that position, into that place where we are willing to believe that you're at work in ways that we can't quite see? That we would hold on to this promise that we are being taken to the top of the stairs, that that golden chain really does end in glorification, in the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.